This is Founders Talk, an interview podcast hosted by me, Adam Stachowiak, and we profile founders building businesses online as well as offline. If you found this show on iTunes, we're also on the web at 5x5.tv slash Founders Talk. If you're on Twitter, follow Founders Talk and me, Adam Stack. Today's guest is Dan Martell, the founder of Flowtown. Enjoy the show. Welcome back, everybody. We're here today with Dan Martell. He's the co-founder of Flowtown. And uh, Dan has such a huge history. Just saying Flowtown is, is what he's about. It doesn't do him justice. But, um, Dan, I'm, I'm a big fan of you, big fan of Ethan, and everything you guys have been doing with Flowtown and just educating the entrepreneurial space. So thank you for the time today to speak with me. Hey, thanks a lot, Adam. I'm uh, honestly, I got to say, thanks for for what, everything you've done over the years. Been been a huge fan for through all the different projects you've been involved in, and uh, appreciate you having me on the show. Very cool, man. I, I appreciate that. Uh, that thanks as well. So, Dan, I, I know that uh, you know you're Canadian, so I got a U.S. based kind of podcast. Though it's, I'd say it's more international than it's than it's stuck here in the U.S. I'm and, sure there's some can- <laughs> Canadians on there. Definitely, uh, yeah. As a matter of fact. Um, um, yeah, there's definitely some Canadians on my, on my show. Um, but you're from Canada. So give us some background of uh, as much as you like uh, about who you are and kind of where you came from and maybe a bit of the history with you getting to the States and specifically down in Silicon Valley. Yeah, I mean, so my my history started, I've uh, been, been an entrepreneur for 11 years. It's kind of like all I know how to do. I obviously didn't do well in a corporate setting. I did that for a year and then quit. Um, you know, the, my first company I ever started while well, was, you know, learning program is a company called Maritime Vacation, um, which was the Maritime is what we call the region where I'm from in Canada. And, uh, my dad had a cottage and the internet was coming on and I thought, why don't I build a way for him to, uh, to, you know, like build a website for his cottage. And that turned into him saying, well, it'd be neat if everybody could just have a profile for their cottage and, and rent and have an, a URL for their, their cottage. And that was the first company I actually, uh, Created a simple mail merge and did a direct mailing to a bunch of people from the uh, the bed and breakfast directory. And people actually sent me some uh, a check and three pictures in the mail. And I told them I'd scan it in and build their profile and send them back a link. And uh, it was hilarious. It was the first time I ever kind of got paid for anything entrepreneurial. And then, you know, that, that idea kept going on for a few years, although I didn't focus on it. And then I started um, another company, which was a hosting company. Because obviously working on web projects, I realized that I wasn't the only person that needed hosting in my area. And I started a company called NB Host. And the big lesson I learned there after spending $10,000 at the age of 19 and losing it all was uh, don't start a web hosting company. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to have any life whatsoever, um, managing and supporting 24-7 critical applications like email for businesses and websites is definitely not the way to go. And um, so that was the, the you know those two companies in, in my mind were were failures in their own rights. Even though you know one didn't really fail, just kind of withered away, which I think happens for a lot of people and entrepreneurs. And the second was definitely a failure where you know that money was gone, invested, and you know it just turned the company off. But um, definitely good experience, which kind of queued things up for my third company that I started when I, when I was twenty four called Spheric Technologies, and um, Spheric was. A simple idea that I thought that companies would start migrating from this concept of an intranet to a portal, which was kind of like what Yahoo Portal is and other things in 2004, um, they would need kind of these tools to, to do that and to collaborate and integrate with their different enterprise systems. So for no other reason than my very first job that I quit, I got taught um, how to build software for enterprises. I started an enterprise software company. And uh, we ended up growing that to uh, 30 employees um, in four years and had customers like Procter & Gamble and Dole Foods and Johnson & Johnson and uh, sold that in 2008. So 100% bootstrapped. There isn't, I mean, there's no such thing as venture investors or angel investors in, in my small province in Canada. So, you know, learned a lot of lessons about, you know, cash flow and, and you know, how to manage people and whatnot and that was super fun. So I kind of took a mini retirement, I call it, in 2008, where I bought a brand new wakeboarding boat, a hot tub, and a cottage, and thought to myself, what more could you need? And uh, <laughs> did that for three months. And then after three months, realized that uh, I was getting bored, right? That was I mean, not all you needed, right? No. I mean, I really missed the the creative aspect. Or you know, there, There's actually, honestly, and I'd love to show this with your, your audience, is 
um, after the sale, I kind of went through this, and I don't know how else to explain, but kind of like post-mortem depression around not being needed. I don't know if that makes sense, but if you're building a company and you have a bunch of employees and all of a sudden one day that goes away and nobody cares if you come into work or don't, it's kind of weird. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, it's like gone. And you know, if you if you're the type of person that puts a lot of worth into the things you create and you don't have anymore, I was kind of like, you know, what am I going to do? So instead of sitting down and relaxing, I decided on uh, September first, two thousand eight, to uh, pack up my mountain bike and my clothes and move to San Francisco. And had no friends there, no college roommate, no uh, people from the industry that lived there, and just showed up, got a got a furnished apartment, and started talking to people. And so that, uh, I guess one of the first people you probably talked to, or at least some of the spark with where you're at with Photon and the acquisition, which we're, we'll eventually get into, but, uh, that person was Ethan. What was the story behind you and Ethan connecting and, and starting the magic you guys have been, uh, running with the past two years or so? Yeah. So Ethan and I met on Twitter. <laughs> so that's the funny answer, but it's true. Guys that worked with me in my previous company had met Ethan at South by Southwest and, when I moved there, they, they saw on Twitter that Ethan had just recently moved there and said, hey, at eBlock, you should meet at Dan Martell. And you know, I reached out to him, DM'd him, and found out that he lived six blocks away from me from where my apartment was. So yeah, we got together, and it was funny because at first, you know, Ethan was doing this video podcast called uh, WSYK, What Should You Know? Right. Um, for anybody listening, definitely go Google and look at those early videos of Ethan rocking it out in his apartment. But I was just really impressed with his passion. Like he obviously had a passion for creating this and, and doing video and, and creating a community. And I just was curious about how do you do that? And he taught me a lot of stuff and he was working full time for a company called Cake Financial. And uh, the good thing that happened to me and the bad thing for everybody else was the economy took a tank in you know October of 2008. So Ethan calls me out one day and says, hey, Dan, I just got laid off. What should I do? And I said, well, let's go for dinner and we'll talk. And at that dinner... I asked him, like, why did you move here? And he said, well, I moved here to do a company. And I said, well, start. start. And he's like, well, I, <laughs> I don't know what answer, to do. Right? Start. Yeah, I'm like, if you moved here for that, like... What are you doing? Yeah, do it. And he's like, well, I don't know what to work on. I said, well, what I was doing at the time is I was... Uh, when I first moved out there, I didn't know anybody. So I offered my time because I'm a programmer and a marketer and said, if any startups needs me to come in for a week and kind of understand their you know their messaging and their product and and really understand who their customers are and help them with user acquisition i'll do that for a week no cost to them but at the end of it there's no there's no long-term work product essentially i'll come in help you out add a lot of value uh you get some value out of it i learn a lot and uh while i was doing that they all felt like you know this is great dan but we need somebody to execute on all the stuff you suggested and i said hey ethan why don't you help me work on this stuff since i don't really want to be a consultant and he said, awesome. So he had a job. So that's what we did. And you guys got yeah, started. That's what we did. Yeah, so I, I essentially put them in contact, and Ethan started working with a few companies. And it wasn't more than like five or six weeks later where he said, like, you know, I really think there's a product. Because what I was helping these companies understand is how do you leverage social and all these other free channels like content marketing and, you know, um, inbound marketing to get customers because when you're early you can't really afford to run google adwords or you know at the time i don't think there was facebook ads but you can't afford to pay for your users so how can we build a repeatable scalable process to use inbound marketing techniques and ethan said well you know all the stuff you've suggested they do there's there's a product that can be built to support that and at first i was reluctant because you know when i moved out there I said, I'm going to take a year off and just study and learn product marketing and meet people and viral loops and all this interesting stuff that you know enterprise companies don't do that I found fascinating. But he cornered me. He said, I remember we were out at uh, an event and we walked outside and he, and he goes, I want you to be an investor. And I was like, uh, in what? He's like, this company, this thing, we're going to build this. And I was like, Look, I'm still just trying to understand what I'm, I'm going to do long term. But I'll tell you what, like if you can go raise some money from your friends and family, I'll match, you know, kind of you raise 25 cents and I'll match at 75 cents. Nice. And that was that was the early days of Flowtown. I wasn't even a co-founder at the very, very beginning. It was just I really liked Ethan. I thought he was smart. He wanted to build something that obviously I cared about because I was the one designing it. 
And, and we did that. So, you know, fast forward to today, you know, I quickly, a few months later, I, I became full-time involved co-founder. We built the product, launched it, got to break even uh, in revenue, and then eventually raised uh, 750K from investors like uh, Mitch Kapor, Steve Anderson, Dave McClure, um, Travis Kalnick from Uber, um, just amazing, amazing investors. And, you know, there's a longer story behind the Flowtown story, but at the end of the day, fast forward two and a half years later, we uh, we get acquired by a company called Demand Force. Now, I was actually, I, I didn't read the blog post right away what I actually did because I use one of your products called Timely, and we yeah. can talk about that if you like, but I logged into Timely like, whoa, what is this by Demand Force? I'm like, you know, Dan's the kind of person, Ethan's the kind of person. Uh, to run a company that would announce these kinds of things. So I'm like, let me go to their website and see what they've talked about recently. And sure enough, I go there and I'm like, they got acquired. You know what, Adam? In hindsight, that is the biggest mistake that I made is we actually never emailed our users to tell them we got acquired. We I don't know why that slipped through. You know, We were on TechCrunch and we announced it and we did a blog post on our website and we changed the homepage and we added the logos. But for some reason, I forgot to think, hey, we should email our users. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. I mean, because you're such an email person too. Like, if somebody emails you, you're like on it. You know, either it, you're it very was, thorough yeah. a day later, or you know, two minutes later, you got at least one, a one liner from you. It was honestly like three weeks after we announced that it occurred to me that we never sent an email to our users because I was I was getting a lot of people saying, "Hey, what's new?" And I'm like, "Well, we got acquired, didn't you hear?" And they're like, <laughs> "Oh no, I didn't see that." And I was like, "Oh, geez, no wonder because I never emailed you guys." Yeah. That's crazy. So, Do you want to talk about the acquisition at all? I know it's it's kind of a a fun story to get acquired. Is there anything in this story that's that's really just on on your mind? Yeah, I mean, I definitely. I'm actually about to release a blog post on uh, a blog I write on MapleButter.com about seven tips for getting acquired. Um, but you know, the story for us, uh, which is always different for everybody, but there's some themes in there. Is um, we were uh, working on our product, scaling it, everything was going great, and we knew we were going to raise another uh, round of funding in September. Uh, and in July, you know, we're heads down working, and for some reason, on the same day, two separate companies, totally unsolicited, reached out to us and kind of just nudged and said, hey, what are you guys thinking of doing long term? Is there something for us to talk together about? We really think you guys are doing interesting stuff. And at first we were, you know, our default answer has always been, no, that's unimaginable. We're building a company like, thanks, but you know, we're heads down. But for some reason, knowing that we were having to raise another round, we thought, well, we should at least talk to our investors about it. And that's what we did. So we reached out to one of our our lead investors, Steve Anderson, and uh, from, from Baseline Ventures and said, Hey, Steve, here's what happened. Here's the emails. Here's what they're saying. You know, we know we got to raise another round. What do you think? And he was just, absolutely supportive and open and said, you know, and this is, this is worth noting. You should raise from really good investors because he said, look, you guys have done amazing work and we went through some ups and downs and and everything. And we brought it back to life. He just said, whatever you guys want to do, I'm going to support you. And you got to measure the opportunity cost of, you know, taking an exit now versus raising an A, investing another five years and diluting and all this other stuff. So, I did what I suggest every entrepreneur do is once we got the green light, we, uh, I reached out to a few other guys that had recently sold their companies, a guy named uh, uh, Tim Young, who was a co-founder of SocialCast and About.me. I said, hey, Tim, here's what we're hearing. What do you think? And he gave me the lay of the land. And you know, I also reached out to um, a few other companies that have recently acquired. And you know, they gave me some really great insights, and we decided to go down that path. Now, now the best advice Steve Anderson gave us was, Make a you know great. You have these two companies that are interested. Make a list of seven or eight other companies that you would really be excited to go work with, right? Because you're in play, you might as well let them know that hey, this is going on. If you're interested in talking, let's talk. Because you wouldn't want to you know not end up in the right place. And that, and that was that was critical. And it was through that process that um, you know we we told a few friends that were close to the company what was going on and. One of my friends, Jonathan, calls me up one day and says, hey, you have to come down and meet my friend Patrick. And I was like, yeah, I'll be right there. And I didn't even know who Patrick was at the context. <laughs> I just trusted Jonathan and uh, showed up at a bar. And Patrick was the, the VP of marketing at Demand Force. And he was on the board of directors for that company. And you know, Jonathan said some things about what we were doing. And Patrick started getting interested in kind of our product and what we were building and asked us to come in and talk to them. And 
that was the first conversation that led to many more and made them part of this process that we went through. And at the end of the day, when we looked at the two other companies plus the Manforce that we were talking with, we really felt like they would provide the best outcome for our technology, integrate it, the team, the culture. They were located in San Francisco. Everything was going to stay the same, and it was just an awesome, awesome outcome. What's the process of that take? Like how long? To like start to so, finish to to like find that that conversation, have that conversation, and like actually get to a point where you can say, yeah, let's let's move forward and actually get acquired and put that announcement out. Yeah, so I would say the first thing you got to do is decide you're 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 willing to go down that path. So once we made that decision, which was probably a week after we talked to our, our lead investor, um, we then made a list of the other companies. And what's neat is you realize that there's only three people at each company that you really need to know: the product manager, because they're the one that decides if your technology fits into the roadmap. The corporate development guy whose job, and I found this super interesting, his only job in life is to get deals done, right? His job is to buy company, so <laughs> make friends with him. And then obviously the CEO is going to make the final decision. So, you know, you have nine companies on the list and there's really 27 people that you can chat with. And we did that. So for like four weeks, all we did was talk to companies, talk to the product people, showed them, demoed, uh, understood what they were doing in their roadmap. And then at the end of the four weeks, you kind of whittle down, whittle down, and, and you know, and two more weeks after that. So it's pretty much like from the beginning to term sheets, six weeks. And then we made a decision. And then so that's phase one. And then the second phase is due diligence, which is probably the craziest time because you've said to the acquirer, in our case, Demand Force, yes, we're excited and we're going to do this, but there's all this paperwork that has to be done. And that process can actually take up to six weeks to eight weeks. And during that time, you really don't have much leverage, right? You've signed a term sheet saying that, yes, this is a done deal. And then you're doing due diligence. And at any point, there's always this fear that something's going to come undone, Mm. right? And you have really nothing you can do other than just put your head down, build a great product. And if it comes undone, that's okay. Go on to the next stage. You can't help it. I mean, all you can do is, like you said, you can do good terms. You you agreed on things and you got to go with that process anyway. So... There's nothing you can do besides just keep moving forward. That's the, the, the thing. And I mean, I got advice from uh, Tony Conrad, who was also uh, you know, from True Ventures and co-founder of About.me. And he said, you know, because people were saying, oh, you want to like put some announcement out there and show the choir that you're still moving forward and all excited. And Tony said, actually, you don't want to do that because you don't want to be out there announcing new partnerships and then have somebody in the comments say something negative about the market or the space or the company. So yeah. that was like, that was solid advice, you know, and, we even thought like, oh, well, it makes sense to be on site at the acquirer and like be present so that they know that we're committed to making this happen. And, you know, again, Tony said, no, you don't, you don't, you shouldn't do that. Like you want to be friendly, but at the same time, they got to complete their process and, and, you know, you're not, it's not a done deal yet. And they need to know that you, you're going to move forward regardless. So moving forward now, I guess you're required where, where are you and Ethernet in this and where are the other people that were involved in, in uh, Floton Timely and the other products you guys are going on? Where are you yeah, at with that now? So the awesome part is uh, the whole team moved over. We, uh, we announced the, even though the acquisition was done uh, beginning of October 1st, we only announced it on the 14th because uh, Demand Force wanted to do a big, uh, all hands, everybody flies in, they rented a big space and we actually get up on stage and introduce ourselves and talked about kind of what we built. So it was really, it was really an amazing day. Um, I, my, my role at the company is essentially, um, not, there's no, I, I don't have a title per se, but the things I focus on is product strategy and marketing. So those are two areas that I'm, I'm passionate about as a developer and an engineer and as a marketer, like the product strategy and understanding what demand force has. And they're an amazing company. Most, you know, I always call them the quiet giant, but you know, they've had six years of quarter over quarter, 80% growth. Wow. Like, yeah, they're a juggernaut. Most people don't realize it. Most people use actually are on the receiving end of their product because they integrate with dental, uh, dentists and automotive. So if you've ever gotten a dental reminder saying, Hey, you've got an appointment coming up, you, you want to confirm that's probably demand for it. So that, that, uh, mailing I get from my dentist every time is from them. Absolutely. Yeah. They're, they're, uh, they plug into a hundred different management systems and they automate the, uh, email reminders, marketing retention. And then they all, they have a light social component where we're now fitting in and extending. So timely is integrated with their demand force. It's called the D three platform. 
and the gift marketing product that we had uh, is going to be going in in Q1. So technology's in, team's super happy, and it was just an amazing outcome for everybody involved. Yeah, as a as a timely user, I was pretty encouraged when I read uh, the announcement, and it was talking about how timely and the Flowtown um, technology was being integrated into Demand Force, and it was encouraging just to know that you know that was kind of like a side project. I know you and I kind of exchanged some emails about thoughts on how it should work and how you were pricing it and what you were doing with it and whatnot. But it's kind of nice to see how it's actually fitting into the long term of of Demand Force's efforts. Yeah, so the, what's cool is they've allowed us to keep the product as an independent product and free for life for everybody that wants to use it. And then we've also integrated it uh, into the dashboard so that Demand Force customers can tweet and schedule and post to Facebook right from within their product. So it's the same back end, but two different kind of front ends. And the free version, which is what you're using, will be free for life and everybody should use it because it's a pretty great product. So for the uninitiated about uh, about who you are, I mean, we talked about Flowtown and acquisition, how you met Ethan, and kind of how you got from Canada to the U.S. and your history with startups and stuff. Uh, but beyond that, you know, you're an advisor. You like to invest. You like to speak out about entrepreneurship. You like to give great advice. Um, I mean, what is the next best term we could probably take in this conversation to to really pull some good things out about uh, about things you've done best, I guess, to, to educate the world? Yeah, I mean, best. I'm still working and learning like everybody else. But um, I would say, you know, I started as an investor just because when I was doing Spheric, I would meet these really bright entrepreneurs and knew the value of staying focused, but really wanted to get involved. And this is back when I was living in Canada, and I didn't even call it angel investing. I would just give them money, right? Like, they would be like, I'm working on this idea, and I need to hire this guy, and here's this idea. And I'd say, well, what do you need? Like 20, 30, 40 grand? And They'd be like, yeah, that'd be great. And I'm like, cool. And I would just give them money and they'd give me a percent of their company and then I would advise them. So it was actually, that's why I always call myself like an informal investor because I, I, there was no formality to it other than I trusted and I, I liked what the person was working on and uh, wanted to get involved without you know being super involved. So that, that's where I kind of cut my teeth um, you know, doing the advisory stuff, like understanding that as an advisor investor, it's not your company. You're there to support the entrepreneur. And if they need your help, that's great. And if they want to do it a certain way, you have to support their decisions. Um, that was, that was super interesting, but you know, that kept snowballing. So I started investing in 2006 and, you know, five years later, I've now invested in 15 companies. Um, I'm happy to say that, you know, 60% in the U S and 40% are in Canada. You know, I'm still active in Canada. If I can find great entrepreneurs doing cool stuff, I love to get involved. And, um, it was really through that that you know other incubators like 500 Startups and Year One Labs and Grow Labs out of Vancouver, um, you know, asked me to to join their mentor, the mentorship side of their their program. And you know, I've been absolutely blessed and fortunate to be able to travel around the world to talk about my approach to startups and product development. And you know, I met so the thing around lean startups. I met Eric Reese before he ever gave his first talk at the Web2 Expo, you know, two and a half years ago on Lean Startup. And Eric's been, you know, just a great friend and, you know, not an official advisor, but definitely somebody I turned to for advice, you know, through the ups and downs we went through with Flowtown. And going, understanding the way he frames it, I just felt like there was more of a technical or product approach that wasn't being talked about. So that's why I do a talk called Lean Product Development. And if your audience uh, wants to search that, they can probably find a video. I've done, you know, dozens now. Um, and it's just kind of like the different areas I like to focus on depending on the stage of your company and how you how you use a feedback cycle to uh, educate your product roadmap. Yeah, we didn't mention it early in the call, but uh, I actually had a conversation with your co-founder, Ethan, I guess almost a year and a half ago now. Um on a whole different podcast too. So people that know the show's history know that I ran the Web 2.0 show before and then I kind of canned that and turned it into Founders Talk and that's what we're on today. But I had a conversation with him a while ago and he was actually the person that turned me on to Eric Reese. He's like, oh, you don't know Eric Reese? You got you to gotta talk to him. And I actually had just had a chance to talk to the, the founders of Twilio too. And I, I guess you guys are all kind of connected and yeah, friends. Jeff and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah well, so, so, it's, you know, I gotta, I gotta give a shout out to Dave McClure. I mean, he's, he's the, the connector in all these people. Like he was, he's the one who introduced me indirectly to Nivy at uh, venture hacks and Nivy introduced me to Eric and Dave introduced me to heat and Shaw at kiss metrics. And Dave introduced me to Jeff Lawson because I was with Dave in Paris at a conference and he was about to do an investment in this thing called Twilio and it's just really neat, you know, in only three years, uh, you know, this September would be my third year in, in the Valley. Um, just the amount of momentum. I mean, I met 
Joe Jebbia, the co-founder of Airbnb, at a dinner back, you know, two and a half years ago when it was called airbreadandbreakfast.com. <laughs> and honestly, I thought it was the weirdest idea ever that somebody would not only give up a room in their apartment to a stranger while they're there, because that's how it started, but also cook them breakfast. Right? Right. People forget that was the beginning of Airbnb. It's one of those ideas you hear to start a week and you're like, ah, that could work, but wow, it's, yeah. that's very... It's a stretch. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really neat just to see these great people go from you know just working their butts off to now billion-dollar valuations. I mean, the same thing with Drew from Dropbox. I met Drew a couple of years ago, and we maintained friends, and all of a sudden I hear he's raising a crazy round, and I was just like, that's awesome. Yeah, I, on the note of Dave McClure, I, I have this list uh, I actually maintained pretty heavily um, on the Web 2.0 show's Twitter handle. I had this list of people I wanted to talk to, and Dave McClure was one of those people, but just haven't uh, been in the right kind of place because I, I like to do interviews not so much in exact um, linear fashion, but I have to be in the right kind of mindset or I want to kind of package it up the right way. So I've had him on my list for a while, especially with Geeks on a Planet. It's like so wild to like just travel around the world and uh, educate people about startups and building business and uh, a bunch of geeks get on a plane. It's exactly what it is. I think it's just kind of wild what he does and what he has done for investing in the startup world. It's He's, uh, like you said, a lot of momentum in that, uh, in that space well, in three years. And that was actually like, again, I moved to the Valley September of 08, and the Geeks on the Plane, the first one, I believe, was in May of 09. And I met Dave, and he said, you should come to me. And that was the first one, right? Yeah. And I was just like, yes, I'm in. Like, I trust Dave. I've never been to China. Let's do this. And it was probably one of the, you know, if, if your audience members ever get a chance to do something like that, they should just say yes. And now, it cost $6,000 or whatever the price was, and most people consider expensive. But the people I met on that trip, people like Mark Hendrickson from Plancast, who I eventually became an investor in, um, Josh um, from Gowalla, who's now a friend, um, I, I can just name like 10 people that were on that trip that, you know, because we went and shared that experience together, you know, they've been invaluable in just my career and everything I've gone through. So, you know, I owe a lot to Dave, and I and I just think that like the thing that I took out of it is just sometimes you say yes even if you don't know, trusting that there'll there'll be something that comes out of it. You know, one uh, one specific on your list of being an advisor uh, on is is Kiva.org, and I want to dive into that because I didn't find out about Kiva until I knew you was an advisor too, and I was thinking, well, I guess if Dan's involved, then it's got to be something that's decent. And I think that was about <laughs> I don't know about a year and a half ago, maybe that I think. Uh, I first heard the news uh, through just your your stream of information that comes from you. So um, you might not know this, but I work for a company called Cosmetric, which, for lack of better terms, is a for-profit that incubates and develops nonprofits. And one of those nonprofits we're developing is called Pure Charity. So we kind of have a synergistic way of, of our hearts in the fact that you're an advisor to Kiva. I haven't asked you your true thoughts behind the idea and whatnot, but... Uh, Pure Charity is essentially a platform for change, and I just want to kind of get your your feeling on being not so much just being an advisor to that, or just being involved in that. But what are your thoughts on just changing the world through technology or through micropayments or whatever we can to give our wealth, uh, whether it be uh, IP wealth, you know, physical wealth uh, like money, actual money, or just ideas to uh, people who are being oppressed or being put down in the world who don't have other options. Yeah, I, honestly, Adam, I really appreciate you asking me that question. Um, my, my quick story to how I got introduced to Kiva was uh, when I was doing Spheric and we were growing and I felt like the people, the, the employees at the company really wanted to to have something more than a job and, and being involved in something. We decided, like everybody's like, hey, we should do this charity and that charity. And somebody introduced me to a book uh, written by Mark Benioff called Compassionate Capitalism. And in that book, he talks about the 1% solution. And the one the 1% solution is essentially... Um, take 1% of your assets, your, your income, and your resources um, and donate it to nonprofit. And, you know, it's called the triple bottom line, like community and, and profit and, all, and whatnot. And for us as a company that was, you know, we had customers all over the world and our employees flew all around and we were all very entrepreneurial in our own rights. I figured, what organization can we get involved in that's helping that? And Kiva, when I discovered it, I was, that's the one. So, you know, this is before Kiva actually introduced the group features. But as a company, what I would do is everybody was on board and they promote it. And um, 
uh, 1% of our, our net profit every year went to Kiva as a donation. And we, as a company, would decide which entrepreneurs we would fund and then the money would come back and we just keep cycling through it. And, you know, we've done tens of thousands of dollars in donations to Kiva. And the cool part is when I moved to San Francisco, uh, I realized they were actually based there and wouldn't, you know, sometimes I believe in synchronicity in the universe. The offices for Kiva were 10 blocks away from where my apartment was. <laughs> It's, it's wild how that kind of happens in life, isn't it? It was bananas. So then um, I reached out to the, the CEO, uh, Pramal, and I said, hey, Pramal, I'm an entrepreneur. I just sold my company. I'm also a marketer and a product guy. Love to come in and just talk to you about Kiva and some, some ideas. And we had lunch. And I started talking to him about like, how he could amplify uh, some of the, the, the donation flow to take advantage of the social channels that people were participating in to get more awareness. And that's how I became, uh, you know, an advisor on the social marketing side of what Kiva does. So I guess we're kind of at a point where we can probably talk about traction since that's kind of what you helped him do, which is kind of <laughs> get some traction, understand your customer base, validate your idea, um, customer development, maybe even um, how to use, you know, your tools, social things to, to learn more about the customers that are out there. So in terms of tra- traction and raising money, I know you have this fabulous story with Floton. I mean, it, it, should we go back and kind of rehash what we talked about with Floton re- around this? Or is it something that that uh, you can pull something else from? Well, I mean, I can definitely talk about the process and, and, and you know, Floton. And if you want to read the blog post, I think it's like um, down the rabbit hole uh, Flowtown's story, et cetera. And I talked about at length what, what, what we went through, but, you know, through the life, uh, history of Flowtown, we built five products and doing that, you know, in a two year period and raising capital and all that stuff and eventually getting an exit. Um, I started to see a pattern for how to approach, you know, product development and market, uh, validation. And, you know, it's essentially a play between lean startup and customer development. But, you know, the big thing to remember is that, um, you know, it's not can you build it, it's should you build it, right? Technology-wise, with things like Amazon and Twilio and APIs and infrastructure, you, there's pretty much not many ideas you can't technically build. But the, the better question is, should you? does anybody want it? Right. Right? Because so you don't you waste believe- your time doing something, then you get to the end of that, or at least even into some sort of space. You're like, nobody's there to buy my product or even sign yeah. up for the email list to find out more. Just nothing. So, so if that premise is true, and I believe it to be true, how can you validate the market without writing any code? And for us, and what we did at Flowtown, every time we built a product was we do some high fidelity mockups of what the product would look like. Sometimes it was a, what I call a one pager sales sheet, which is a flow diagram, but it looked like it, the product worked, and it was just an example of how a company used it. Or maybe six high fidelity um, designs for the different screens and the product. And then we would go sell it and we would go talk to companies and say, hey, we have this, you know, do you have this problem? And if they said yes, we'd be like, great, well, here's this idea that we're working on. We'd love to get your advice on it. And at the end of it, if they would say things like, yeah, that's really great, that's awesome, et cetera, et cetera, then we would say, great, then how about you give us a deposit? We'd ask for money, wow. like real dollars. Absolutely. I think I remember Ethan saying that on the my talk with him, and I was just like flabbergasted that you guys came out of the room with something that wasn't built. Uh, maybe you spent a couple of days on hi-fi mock-ups and some thoughts on product, you know, and how it worked and the interface and whatnot, and maybe not going too deep into it. But then you walk out of the room with cash in hand to feed your team to build the thing to just sell it back to them again. Yeah, I would love to say like there was a lot of cash involved, but I mean, with Ethan in the first product, you know, he went, we built a, you know, he spent a thousand dollars on, on six high fidelity screens. We just hired a contract designer, gave him our wireframes and he designed essentially the product visually, what it would look like and how it would work. And then we went and approached 20 people and talked to them about the idea. And they said, yeah, that's great. Love to use it. And then we'd say, give us 20 bucks. Right. And they said, well, what do I get for 20 bucks? And this is the interesting part is that conversation. As soon as you ask for the money, is where the learning is really at. Mm. How do you mean? Well, most people talk to anybody and say, that, here's my idea. And, and there's no harm in somebody else saying, that's great. Let me know when you launch it. But there's a lot of harm to you as an individual if they're just being nice and they're not telling you the truth. When you ask somebody for a dollar, you're essentially asking them to give you something of value. And at that point, they're going to start asking themselves, okay, well, what do I get for this dollar? And that conversation is more relevant in regards to what you're building than just them agreeing with what you're saying and that's a cool idea and all this stuff. So, 
you know, we'd ask for $20 and then they say, well, what do I get? And we'll say, well, you get access to the, our product. And they're like, well, what about, can I share it with my team? And they're like, yeah. And they're like, well, how many accounts can I get? Oh, well, it's unlimited. Okay, well, what about reporting or integration with this product? Because we use this for that and you sound like you're going to augment that. Do you integrate? You know, and, and those are great questions that you want to know, but you, they would never tell you that stuff until you ask them for money. You know, and Steve Blank talks about this, and for some reason it gets lost in a lot of the startups today is he says, customer value, you go out there and you get orders. You ask for the order. You get a letter of intent. You get something where the person, you know, has to invest time or money because as soon as they have to do that, then you know if you're really solving a problem or if they're just being nice. Yeah, it's just hard to tell at that point. I mean, uh, actually, just this past weekend, and, and this is part of your story as well, so we can talk about that. Uh, talk about that if you'd like. But um, I actually gave the opening talk for the startup weekend that happened here in Houston, um, and one of the core metrics for them to even, you know, at the end of the weekend, the fifty-four hours to be chosen upon, um, the la- the middle one was validation. And I'm not sure that anybody really understood what validation is. I think. We were saying, you know, give your mom a call, give your friends a call, you know, tell them the idea for the product and would they want to use it. But I don't recall, uh, me, definitely not, but I don't recall anybody else saying, you know, ask somebody to give you 20 bucks for it. Yeah, no, validation is not, do you think it's a good idea? I mean, those are good things to do, right? right? It's better than sitting in your office and not doing that. But, you know, what I've seen a lot lately is people like, oh, I put up a, a landing page and people signed up for it. It's like that's that's, that's too easy. Relevant. That's just yeah. Or I sent out a survey and I got a bunch of responses. It's like again, not relevant. Yes, you learn in all those instances, and I'm not saying don't do them. But what people forget is why are you doing them? And again, if you believe that it's not the technical risk, it's the market risk. Well, why don't you why don't you fast track that and ask for money for the idea so that you can get to a real good place of do they really want it or are they just being nice and then. If they don't want it and they don't give you the money, then you ask them, who do you think would be an ideal customer for this product? And then they give you ideas as to who maybe the market might be. This, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but this sounds a little similar to somewhat of the story of Kickstarter because there's this fictitious thing that hasn't been created yet. It's an idea, and that they're essentially saying, here's what I have. Give me some money. I'll give you some back-end stuff or some extra features that no one else gets based on your level of, of, uh, of give, basically, or – um, buy-in more or less is that is it similar to the kickstarter idea it, it's similar in the nature that you put marketing collateral or somewhat product prototypes out there and then it's and then you you know kickstarter is interesting because they crowdsource the fundraising process to build it i'm not saying that you need to get as many people to pay you before you even start it's about the learning it. it's just it's just about the learning the conversation the, the 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 conversation with the people that do or don't buy are is way more high quality than if you don't get the money and once they give you the money then they're going to be thinking about it and talking to you it's like oh yeah well have you thought about this angle or that angle because they know they want to get that value from that exchange and you know most engineers they they just they don't feel comfortable asking and that's where they will have the challenges in their startup it's not building product people starting these companies typically startup tech startups they know how to build stuff what they don't know how to do is find a customer for the stuff they're building especially asking for money they do things like freemium because it's less scary well you know, Flowtown launched a product called Landing Pages, and we had 400 registered users and not one paying customer. So we were definitely on the free side and no EMIUM, mm, right? Yeah. And it wasn't until one day this guy, VK, that put down $20, and he wasn't our friend, he wasn't our cousin, he didn't even know us, just felt the value in the product. That was awesome, but we also realized that this wasn't going to scale. This was not a good idea. And VK was a unique case that paid, but we could not make this a business, and we had to pivot into a different product. You know, um, is there any resources out there beyond this conversation we're having now around validation, around this customer development? I know you've written a couple of articles around it, but is there any resources that you just, if somebody asks you, if you got five minutes, you explain validation to them like we're doing now, and you say, okay, beyond this conversation, go here, learn more about validation? I can't say there's some like people that have that have like specifically written about this, but you know if you buy um, there's a book called The Entrepreneur's Guide to Customer Development, uh, written by um, Patrick Flaskovitz and uh, Brent Cooper, and you know they talk about how to think through you know validation. 
Um, you know, and, and they may write about it in the book about, you know, asking for a letter of intent or asking for a dollar or asking for, you know, a purchase order or whatever it is. Um, and I just think that's when that, that's where you should be trying to head. Right. And you don't need to do it with a hundred customers. You just need maybe three, if you're enterprise, you know, 20, if you're SaaS subscription and, you know, whatever, if you're a local market, I don't know, but getting people to pay, it's just such a quick way to get to validation without using all this trickery like landing pages, surveys, customer interviews, et cetera. Right. I, I know it uh, in one of the pieces I found as I was doing some digging around what we could talk about on this call here, uh, the question came up is, what should I work on? And you had one of the most fabulous responses to it. And I think it kind of tail ends what we just kind of talked about, which is – you know, you can work on a lot of stuff, and if you're going to do something in there, I won't go through the whole entire thing you said there, but you said you can work on a million-dollar idea, a $10 million idea, or Facebook, a billion-dollar idea, um, but it's going to take the same amount of time. What do you tell entrepreneurs as you go out there and you're talking to them about the recipes of being successful, uh, specifically around like figuring out what to work on? Wow. I mean, that's I, validation, but beyond validation. Yeah, well, I, you must have seen that was a, a video clip from a big Omaha. Yeah. Uh, interviews. Um, yeah, I mean, it's something that I, you know, honestly, have only learned recently that, you know, it's perspective as well. And it's really hard for a first time entrepreneur, you know, you can only see as far as the horizon, and it depends on where you're at, how far that horizon is. Mm-hmm. So it's really tough for somebody who's never built a company to even think about building a million dollar company. And then anybody who's done that, it's just implausible to think about doing another million dollar company, they want to build a 10 and 100. And the reality of it is, and I I, I, I wish I could convey the confidence, but people just have to trust in the process that the time it takes to do all three is the exact same amount of time. You're going to work 10, 12 hours a day, no matter which company you do, but you can either decide at the beginning to focus on a $100 million idea and take the actions to support that versus the actions to support a million-dollar idea. Mm. And And that is the essence of what I realize is like, you don't need to go to school to get an education to start your business or you don't need investors to start your business. You just need to decide that this is what I'm going to do and you will take those actions to get there. And there's no right answer. There's like a thousand different ways to get to the same point. That's the beauty of doing a startup. You know, the advice I give you can both be argued right and wrong in the very, in the same breath, right? It's context that matters. And, you know, starting the context of starting with a hundred million dollar idea focus is, the the thing that I think helps great entrepreneurs create really meaningful big products, right? Like people, I don't know if they saw this, but like Drew from Dropbox got an opportunity to sell Dropbox to, to Apple. Apple, yeah, and he said no because he ha- he knew where he was going, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, that, that like hands down, that's that's amazing, regardless of Ballsy how great the product as well as is, yeah. yeah, like I mean, geez, like I would not want to compete against Apple, yeah. Like personally, like that that would probably be the only company in the world that I'd be scared of, them and maybe Facebook, because they're just so great at the product and execution. But that um that that's the thing I think is just perspective. Like why why get up every day and do a hundred uh, you know, million dollar idea instead of a hundred, you know? And it doesn't it doesn't mean it's gonna happen overnight. I, I look at doing startups as a five to seven year process. I don't kid myself. I know that it's gonna, you know, I've been fortunate enough to do one company in four and the next one in two, but every day, you know, if I started something new, I would just expect to be in it for the long term. Right. I know that uh, there's some tail end to this too that uh, we could probably talk against, but uh, I'd like you to say it in your own words. But um, you know, what would be the what would be your best advice for aspiring entre- entrepreneurs? I'm looking for a very specific answer because the way you said it here was the best, and I want to hear it from from your mouth. Uh, I don't know what you're looking for, but, um, you know, the best advice I think is don't get advice. You know, most people get advice from their parents. And and I learned this a long time ago that most people have the exact same financial uh, lifestyle as their parents because anytime they're about to make a big decision in life, where they go to school, where do they, should they move to the UK or not, et cetera, the parents will always give them advice to support the decision they would have made. So it only makes sense that if you listen to your parents, you're going to have the exact same outcome as they had in their life. And if your dad is Bill Gates, then cool. Right. right? But the better way to do it, and this is my philosophy, and I changed this thinking like seven years ago, was I only take advice and internalize it from people that have successfully accomplished what I'm trying to do. 
So if I'm trying to raise money, I'm asking the guy that just closed this $4 million A round. I'm not asking the guy that does never raise money or I'm not asking my dad, is this a good idea? Should I raise money? You know, if I'm, if I'm trying to figure out, you know, who should I hire next or, or, you know, what, where should I live? Like the, the decision to move to San Francisco is a tough one because I'm a diehard, you know, super passionate Canadian entrepreneur and I just sold my company and I decided, you know, I wanted to go see if any of my ideas would hold water in, in the best place in the world to, to do a startup per se. Like it's kind of like the Hollywood, if you're an actor, you go there and, and maybe you make it, maybe you don't. And um, I turned to my advisor, Ken Nickerson, who is absolutely successful, you know, angel investor. He's, you know, he's, he's just an amazing guy. And he told me the best thing you could do for your province, New Brunswick, is move to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And go learn and then bring that back. So again, no matter any point in my life where I'm making big decisions, I don't get advice from anybody who hasn't had success in that decision. So it's uh, tomorrow's Thanksgiving. I guess uh, you're Canadian, so it's probably not exactly the most <laughs> monumental holiday for you. But I got to imagine that there's uh, nonetheless the the crux of what Thanksgiving is, is uh, something that's important to you in your heart. So I'm going to give you a chance to... To give some thanks, if you had to make a list of people um, that you can give some thanks to right now for supporting you and helping you to get to where you are today, who would be on that list and why? So, obviously, at the risk of insult, I'm not going to name everybody, but I, I do have to give a shout out to my fiance Renee Warren um, at Renee Warren on Twitter. She's, uh, you know, any entrepreneur knows that it doesn't matter what you create or how much money you make if you're by yourself. It's just not worth doing. And Renee's just been the most amazing supporter throughout my career. And, you know, just, you know, she's been there when all the times that we've gone through tough times and understood when I've had to work till two, three in the morning to get something done because we had an important meeting. You know, I think, you know, other than my family, um, my brothers and my sisters and my parents, like Renee is definitely the person that I would love to call out. And then everybody else that I haven't mentioned I know they know who they are because I tell them. So they know. If they're listening to this, they know who they are because I'm definitely not shy to give recognition for the people that have been supportive of my career. So, I love that answer. That's a good one. Uh, and it's very eloquent the way you put it, too. And I'm sure that those people that are on that list, they, they definitely do know because they know. you are very vocal about how you feel. I know that the emails we've exchanged, we're not best buddies or anything like that, but you've always been very real about who you are and what you represent. So I, I really appreciate uh, that about you, too, before we keep moving on in our conversation. So Thanks. Um, I guess the the last piece we really want to cover here, unless there's anything else that we can probably dive into in the next, I don't know, seven minutes we've got left on on the call here. But I hear you got something super secret for me. <laughs> it's funny because I've been listening to the show when it was the Web 2.0 show. And I, I'm honest, honestly, Adam, when I said thanks for everything you've done, I, you know, you were my, my, my intro, my vision into the startup community when I was in Canada. Um, and, and it was always funny because you'd always ask that question. What, do you have any super secret stuff? And most people would not say anything or they'd give you uh, something they just announced that day that wasn't relevant. But, you know, this is the first time I've ever talked about this new project, this idea. I don't even know what it is. But um, if, if your audience goes to clarity.fm, uh, clarity spelled clarity and .fm, um, it's just this idea I have around getting better advice. You know, and I think you would agree that, uh, and I just talked about it, like, you know, there's people out there that have successfully done stuff and there's people that are about to do that thing. And if there was a better way to connect those two people, I think it would just really solve a problem in the world to help move economies forward and entrepreneurs from, you know, reducing the risk and helping more people succeed and, and create things that they're passionate about and love and really are meaningful. So clarity is the idea they can sign up. Um, that's all I can say for now. Cause honestly, I don't even know what it is going to be, but you know, my focus is on making it a better place to get advice for people around the world. I know you're also kind of involved in some other things too. This is this is such your heart too to to find a way to connect the dots between the unknown and the and the questions out there because I mean your entire history a, a lot of the past few years is really about you giving back you know what I like to call people helping people you call it hustling to help mm. um, but I think you know that's that's just awesome I love that because so many times people need advice on sometimes the smallest things sometimes the biggest things and unless they have the right kind of resources 
you know, like we covered before, you know, on the what should I work on or, or whatever, you're not going to get the kind of advice that you need to make a truly actionable, wise and just decision about the future you're trying to take. Yeah, and, and those decisions are life changing, right? They're the difference between me going to San Francisco, <laughs> doing right. a startup, and getting acquired in three years, or retiring, semi-retiring, and just chilling out in New Brunswick. Like, I, I can't imagine what my life would look like if I if I hadn't gotten that advice from Ken. Or there's many, you know, instances of that throughout my life. And you know, I I just will never forget, you know, being that 19 year old kid with you know programming skills. And nobody understanding what the heck I was doing. And even to this day, nobody really understood what my family, (laughs) but um, this real need for wanting to connect to people that were thinking and doing stuff similar and getting advice from those people. And, you know, I believe that, yeah, I'm busy. People are busy. But if there was the right way to connect those two people in a, in a, in a qualified and and high value way that um, that could really move, you know, society and communities uh, forward. So clarity.fm had their now pop your email address in if you're looking for some clarity, which I think is a phenomenal name too, by the way. I think simple one word names like that, just they're 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 awesome. Thanks. Yeah, well it actually comes from a friend of mine, Gare. He uh he used to say the risk of insult is the price of clarity. Mm, yeah, that's true. Right? And I I just keep thinking that all the time when I'm giving advice to entrepreneurs and stuff, and I just thought that was the perfect frame and name for the for the project so for the listeners of the call who are just like flabbergasted by everything we just talked about and want to get in touch with you and want to learn more about you how can they get in touch with dan how can they get in touch with you and learn more about who you are what you're doing and just maybe even reach out and ask a question yeah well so so i'm glad you queued it up i'll give you a sneak peek um a on twitter at dan martell two l's to martell um tweet at me ask me questions i'm there to help um, I also write on maplebutter.com, uh, which is a Canadian startup blog. And um, if you want to talk, and I'll give this as an exclusive for your audience, and I'm hoping it doesn't get too crazy, if you go to clarity.fm slash dmartell, D-M-A-R-T-E-L-L, um, I'll give you a call. Wow. I'm heading there now before we kill this call so I can look at this. Sweet. So you can pop in your name and your number. This is awesome. Well... I won't it's put my name and, and number in there because it's, <laughs> it's just a glimpse. I, I love it. It's and it's it's ready for the iPhone. I can see, so that's awesome. Yeah, uh, mobile it, first. It is all about mobile. That's right. Well, Dan, um, you know we're fans of each other. Uh, I'll be a fan of yours for a long time to come. Appreciate you taking the time uh, to come on. Congrats to you and Ethan and the rest of the team for all your hard work on Flowtown and Timely and getting acquired and what that means for your future. Uh, you've been a blessing to this community. Uh, blessing me specifically and uh, and a great friend I, I guess through distances if not uh, in face to face so thanks again for taking the time to come on the show man absolutely appreciate it, Adam thanks a lot